Hello and welcome to the Riff Raff podcast, hosted by Amy Baker and Rosie Edwards. We set up the Riff Raff to champion the work of debut authors and to provide guidance and support for those dreaming of one day being published themselves. Today we're chatting to Oscar Momju, author of The Peace Machine. We discuss how to reality check your research, the enduring popularity of the circus as a literary tool, and how to approach writing about places you've never been. Hello, thank you so much for joining us on the Riff Raff podcast. Hello, thank you. <laughs> We're so pleased to have you. Um, can you start by telling us um, about what your book, The Peace Machine, is about? Well, it's about a bunch of people who are trying to invent a peace machine uh, in the early 20th century. Uh, just before the uh, First World War, in order to stop the uh, upcoming war. And uh, this machine is using electromagnetic waves to influence uh, humans' brains so that uh, they won't have any aggressive feelings and so that they can live in, in peace and prosper. And is that is that it's such an interesting idea? Because obviously, you know, the sort of whole idea about kind of energy levels and stuff like that is is a thing like you know the, the vibration that you give off is what you attract back and everything like that i love that kind of idea does the science behind this machine check out <laughs> <laughs> well not really oh, that's a shame that's a shame <laughs> not really but uh, the thing is that in the early 20th century it was a period where a lot of inventions were being made so i think if some people came up with that idea at that period of time, and a lot of people could have believed in that because it's the time when electricity was just invented. You got the telegram, and everything is like a bit of a magic. So if someone says that, okay, I found a machine who is, which is uh, spreading some electromagnetic waves and that can influence your minds, I think uh, it would be more credible uh, uh, than uh, compared to today. Cool. And is that is that kind of why you set it back then? I mean, I know obviously, obviously it was a key point in history as well, but was that to do with the sort of setting? Well, there's a bit that, but also I think there are lots of uh, parallel lines between that period of time and our time uh, now. Because uh, I think, well, the, the, the technological development, it was enormous at that time. And we're having more or less the same thing. I mean, you know, look at all the Black Mirror thing and <laughs> what's happening around and artificial intelligence, internet, etc. What was the electricity that uh, back then? Now it is the internet, for example. And uh, uh, and those technological changes send some shockwaves to societies, and they change the societies because they don't really know how to cope with it. And uh, it also changed uh, how they communicate with each other. That's what we are living also uh, nowadays. And I also think that that, uh, that period of time, just before the First World War, it was the end of a certain social economic order. It was the end of the colonial empires. It was the end of a one kind of a uh, capitalist uh, system. And I think we are also facing the same challenges today. Uh, after the 2007 crisis, the economic crisis, the world has changed a lot. We haven't realized it at that moment, but now we realize it with the ascent of all those authoritarian regimes all around the world, the, the rise of populism, etc., etc. So uh, I think uh, those two periods were quite reminiscent. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, anyone who's listening to this right now will have already picked up on the fact that you're a very erudite, you speak very eruditely, you're very um, well informed. And it's because I would imagine you are an award winning journalist and an activist for free speech. 
um, your father was tragically assassinated and he worked for the same newspaper as you did. And we were really interested in how your day job, you know, your sort of professional life in, in journalism has influenced you writing a book that's about peace. Yeah, thank you. Uh, well, I I didn't win the award myself. I mean, it was, uh, I went to, uh, to Germany to pick the award on behalf of my newspaper because all the other people who were supposed to uh, take the award, they were in prison. So I was the, practically the only person uh, who was able to go abroad. So it wasn't a personal award for me, it was uh, on the name of my the newspaper. And uh, I am normally an academic, I teach uh, international law at Galatasaray uh, University in Istanbul, and uh, I'm just writing columns for a newspaper, just opinion pieces, so I'm not a full-time uh, journalist working at the uh, newspaper. But of course, uh, it affects you, uh, working in a newspaper, only uh, following the uh, everyday information and the What's happening in our region, especially in our country, is also uh, pushes you to think more about the peace and the, the ways to achieve it. And uh, this is something quite constant in the background of your head all the time. And I think that's one of the reasons when I started writing the book, the peace idea, just the peace machine idea just popped in my head. It gives you the chance to comment on so much, doesn't it? Mm. Like in terms of timeframes and technology and all that kind of stuff. So it's, yeah, it's obviously a, a great tool and a really interesting idea. It's a really great idea. Sort of following on from that, books have always played an incredibly important role in bringing about social change. Was that your intention with this book? Was it to was it to make you know a, a comment and to either spark thought or to try and influence change, or was it just more of a you know sort of pleasurable activity for you? Well, I never thought that I would. Kindle a revolution. <laughs> On the other hand, I'm used to uh, very quick uh, uh, feedbacks because I'm writing op-eds on a newspaper in a newspaper. So I'm uh, used to that. With that book, you don't have it. You have the feedbacks quite uh, quite late. So that was something that I'm not used to. But it's been two years now, so I know the feedbacks. But at the beginning, it was a bit difficult because uh, since I was used to writing columns, I was like. Okay, now now what? Now what's happening? Well, yeah. A couple of months, nothing serious was happening. So, <laughs> uh, but I didn't I didn't write it just to you know start something a social movement or anything like that. Uh, I was more uh, focused into the literary side of the things. I really wanted to something. I really wanted to write something uh, literary as a, a, a proper fiction book. I didn't use the novel as a medium to convey a message because I don't really need it because I got the newspaper, I got the social media for that. Uh, but probably uh, that also played a role. Uh, maybe I just wanted to give out a message. Rather, a food for thought maybe, something that we can all speculate about and think about. Mm -hmm. And it, books, obviously, they change, don't they, as, depending on who's reading them and everyone will take something different from it. I think you know. I think it's. I think there's so much to take from this book as well. well absolutely, of course. According to each uh, reader, uh, uh, the meaning of the book can change. But I think that change is a, might be slight in that in that book because in this book I wanted to treat some basic. Uh, 
problems of uh, of the humankind in general, which means, I mean, free will or destiny, nurture or nature, uh, belief or uh, rationality, etc. So those are quite common concepts and common to every nation and every country in all ages. So that's why I wanted to treat all those subjects. We always um, we're always so interested in in asking our authors kind of how they how they came to to the to find their themes. So it sounds kind of like you um, you knew that you wanted to write about kind of destiny and free will and those kind of things prior to starting writing. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. so how did you go about feeding them through? Or did you just tell the story and then and know they that kind of in the back of your head they were there? Well, I was reading a book called The Sleepwalkers, uh, a fiction book about the uh, the beginning of the First World War. And it was talking about that a, a coup d'etat, uh, the military coup in, in Serbia. And I just, while reading the book, it was a sunny day on Monday, uh, in May. I remember that one. <laughs> and I, when I was reading the book, I just stopped reading it and started daydreaming about a who might take place in such a coup which uh, changes the course of humanity. And that gave me the idea uh, to treat the, uh, the, the Serbian uh, coup, which uh, is the starting point of the First World War in 1902. But that's how, I, how it started. I mean, I just started daydreaming while I was re reading a very good, but uh, naturally boring fiction book. <laughs> That's where the idea came for you. Cool, um, and also, so obviously, your character, your main protagonist, Jalal, Jalal he's um, he's a writer himself. He he writes erotic fiction, which is clearly a world away from what you write as an academic and a columnist, or maybe not. Um, <laughs> you never know. <laughs> just in, it's, it's always interesting when um, it, when books use writers as their main protagonist. I think, and I'm currently writing one about that at the moment, so I'm interested to get your ideas on this. Um, was was adding the kind of writer element with your protagonist, was that kind of a way of getting your own, injecting your own kind of personal perspective on the world or kind of the perspective of a writer? Or what was your kind of thought process with when you were forming Jalal? Maybe I did it unconsciously. Uh, it, it, it wasn't a uh, conscious choice. Uh, and his main uh, element is not him being an author, by the way. He's doing it uh, as a side job. And it's and I think I did it because I've got a, a, a relative. I mean, I have never met him. He died in 1960s, I think. I know that he used to write uh, some erotica uh, with a, a pseudonym in order to gain money. <laughs> so maybe, maybe that also influenced me, and I, I just uh, put that element in that character. Yeah. I think we've been missing a trick. I think maybe yeah. that's where, where we should turn our talents to, to earn a quick buck. Absolutely. Um, and the story takes place, it's set in Istanbul, it travels to Belgrade, to Paris. Um, what was your research process in, like in terms of you know, changing the setting? Did you go to places? Did you read a lot about them? Were they places that you were aware of? Well, I already live in Istanbul, so that part was easy. And, uh, and uh, I lived in Paris for six years. I did my PhD there. Mm -hmm. So I, I knew Paris also. I've never been to Belgrade, but uh, I made a, uh, an intensive research. Uh, I, in one moment, I have 
found myself lost in some obscure Serbian monarchist forums and uh, using Google Translate to understand <laughs> <laughs> what they're f- still feeling about the the, the, the lost dynasties, etc. Uh, but uh, I did quite research, but since I, I'm also an academic, I know how to make research, so it wasn't the, the, uh, the worst part of it. Yeah. And it, it was quite uh, enjoyable also. And what would your tips be for anybody who is thinking about setting their book somewhere that they've never been and and, and are unlikely to go? How do you make it realistic? Because, you know, research will get you, you know, sort of 99% of the way there, but there's probably something, you know, that's that extra element of kind of really recreating that world. What would you advise? Well, I would advise them to read Jules Verne because he never went out of Nantes, and uh, he wrote about the moon <laughs> the, all around the world, etc. So you don't really have to go uh, to the spot and uh, visit the, uh, the streets itself, which would be uh, quite enjoyable also, but yeah. <laughs> uh, not everybody has the opportunity to do that. But uh, the writers like Jules Verne, he, he has already done it, just without putting a step outside of his hometown, he has written all about the world and, and also the space. So I, I think that might give people courage uh, and intensive research also. I'm sure Jules Verne did a quite intensive research because when he is describing some uh, sceneries in the, some uh, remote parts of the world, uh, they are quite plausible. I think, uh, and with the internet uh, and with all the resources that we have today, I don't think it's an obstacle for people uh, to not write a book. How do you, um, I, I find that like research is something that I can get completely lost in, you know, I love it so much. I can just completely like lose myself for days when I should be writing. And so I wonder whether that's a problem that you have too, or whether you like how any, like, how would you advise people to not, to, to not to fall down the rabbit hole. Yeah, where to draw the line, basically. <laughs> uh, well, that's a problem also I have. I mean, I think everybody has it. Uh, I think we should always check ourselves, check ourselves if we are doing a research or if we are procrastinating. So you have to do the reality check to yourself. Are you doing it because you really are not ready to write it? Or are you doing the research because you really need the research? And I think at some point, some, uh, the, uh, the writer should just stop research and write about it and uh, write the book. And if it doesn't work, if it needs uh, extra research, I think the book itself will tell you at the end of the day. And I also think that uh, if the writer is lucky to uh, work with an editor, uh, the editor also has a quite a responsibility there to tell the author to stop and <laughs> write about it. On that, on that note, in terms of working with an editor and stuff, um, did you are we, did you write the book originally in Turkish? Yes. And then, and then, so how have you found like how have you found the translation process? And and when it came to the UK, did you then have to? So you obviously worked with ter- your your Turkish editors, and then when it came to the UK, did you have to go through a whole another round of edits, like? Yes, I, well, I'm I'm lucky because I speak English. But, but the, yeah. the, book, the, the book will be translated into German, into Italian, or into Spanish, and into Korean also. And those are all languages that I've got no idea. So I don't know how they are going to publish it and how uh, the translations will be. But for the English translation, the translator uh, was based in Istanbul, and they. 
he was basically a friend of mine, so I worked with him uh, during the translation. So whenever he had a question, he asked me. And uh, later on, uh, to push him press, uh, I worked with the editor, uh, Daniel, when, uh, he started, when he finished his editing. Uh, I gave him some ideas. I accepted some of his editings. I have reviewed some of his editings, etc. We bargained a little bit. But at the end, uh, we were all okay about the final draft of the book. Mm. And there's the book is also... Um, woven through, weaved through, um, woven through, woven through <laughs> with um, elements of magical realism, which we really enjoyed when we read it. And I was wondering, was that important to you to sort of be able to make it more accessible for readers? You're tackling huge topics, you know, as we've discussed. Was that a conscious choice to sort of make it a more fantastical read for the reader? Or what was the inspiration behind that? Uh. I think the the main inspiration is that I really like magical realism. So that that's that a was, good uh, answer. <laughs> yeah, and uh, and also uh, I also think that you have to sugarcoat a little bit uh, because uh, just to avoid the dullness uh, because it might become a repetitive and uh, quite boring if you're just only insisting on treating some very big problems of the humankind. I mean, one should write an fiction book, a non-fiction book, if they really, if somebody really wants to treat those subjects. I wanted to write an adventure novel also. So I, what I wanted to try to do is that if a 16-year-old person reads the book, he or she can take something from the book because she can, he or she can follow an adventure there. And if uh, somebody who is more read, uh, that, that person can uh, understand and can enjoy maybe more. So I tried to write a, a book with uh, several layers. Yeah. And magical realism uh, and that fantastic style was also uh, some kind of an element which uh, cements all those layers together. Yeah. Or at least that's what I hope trying to do. Yeah, and I mean, you've obviously got a circus in there too, which is which is like a, a something that I always love reading about. Yeah, what do you think it is about the enduring popularity of kind of circuses in literature? Like, what what's your opinion on that? Well, I actually hate circuses. <laughs> <laughs> I really that's, that's don't what like is, though, circuses. <laughs> I am one of I am one of those people who were really scared of clowns when they were kids. So, uh, but. Uh, a circus is also like the world because you got a lot of people there and they have to cohabit together, coexist together. Uh, I think that's why it is uh, widely used in uh, literature and in cinema because you can, uh, it's a very uh, fruitful place to use the metaphors. Mm. Uh, that's one of the reasons why I've used it and I need it's, uh, a group of people who can freely uh, uh, walk around the world uh, without raising too many questions and you never you're never suspicious about the circus if it's going to make a, a military coup or if it's going to make a if it's going to be spying on you etc that's why I have also chosen the circus yeah. Great. And for our listeners who would like to read um, more work by Turkish writers, is there anyone that you recommend? Yeah, I mean, they can uh, read the, uh, let's say, the, the modern classics uh, of the Turkish literature. I mean, I can always recommend, of course, the Orhan Pamuk, which is a, uh, which is a must. I mean, uh, also Yashar Kemal, who is... Uh, 
I think he's also in English. He is a little older than Oran Pamuk, but he's still quite good. Ahmed Hamdi Tampunar. I'm going to write you all those names for you. Subtitles. And Murat Uyurkulak, uh, that's another uh, author, uh, is quite good. And Ejet Emel Kuran also. We, we get a lot of uh, good authors, and, uh, and the, the Turkish novels are quite, uh, but they're multiplying uh, lately. We've got a lot of Turkish novels coming around, and I think that is uh, one of the reasons is that the, uh, when your regime is becoming more repressive, you try to find other ways to uh, express yourself. Uh, I think that's one of the reasons why the Turkish literature scene is quite vibrant nowadays. Mm. Thanks. Great. Well, please do send across those names so we can actually include them. Okay. <laughs> I, was, I was trying to write them down, like phonetically. No, I was like, ah, no I've yeah. failed miserably. And what, what an exciting time to be an author in Turkey. Yeah, yeah. As the uh, you know the old Chinese curse, which says, uh, "I wish you live in uh, very interesting times." <laughs> so, so it's a curse in Chinese. Yeah. Uh, it's, yeah, it's, it's quite interesting. It gives you a lot of food for thoughts or uh, it's you can never you know stand still and uh, think about anything else uh, well there's an old saying also from a Turkish author which says that Turkey is a very jealous country it never lets its children to think uh, anything else uh, but Turkey <laughs> so we are li we are living in a uh, not the brightest moment of our country and the whole world is not going in a very good place but it I think it is one of the darkest periods of, uh, of our country, but uh, I think we're in a tunnel and we don't know if it's the beginning of the tunnel or the end of the tunnel. I just wish that it's the end of the tunnel. Uh, and uh, uh, what we can do is to run uh, as fast as we can in order to finish this tunnel. It cannot go on forever anyway. Mm. And if people wanted to read more about kind of like the, everything that's going on in Turkey at the moment, where would you recommend they like brush up on their knowledge. I feel like Rose, Rosie and I both need to know more on the topic. <laughs> uh, well, as I, one of the authors that I have mentioned, HTM Alcran, she has written a fiction book, which is uh, which was published, uh, I think, a couple of months ago. I just don't remember the title in English. Uh, I can also send it to you. And there is also another Turkish author uh, called Ezgi Basharan. Uh, her uh, book uh, was published by... Uh, I don't really remember what by prominent uh, publishing house. That also explains uh, why uh, the dialogue between the Turkish Kurds and the Turkish government collapsed and why it uh, resulted uh, uh, with what we have in Turkey nowadays. I think those two books can explain what is actually happening in Turkey. But in order to understand what happened uh, in Turkey, they have to refer themselves to, uh, to history books, I think. Mm -hmm. Great. Thank you. And just and just as a last finisher, um, obviously you know you're a, you're writing a columnist, you're an activist, you're a, a lecturer. You know, you it seems like you have a lot to do, <laughs> and like the kind of eternal problem of people that are aspiring writers is time management and actually getting those hours down writing. Do you have any tips for those who have got a lot on their plate too about how to get their first book written? Well, yes, that's a huge problem for me uh, because I try to do several things. What, what worked for me, at least for this book, was to, to start working at 11 a.m. until 3, uh, 11 p.m. until 3 a.m. Oh, wow. and sleeping less. And that's and waking up maybe around nine. 
Oh my yeah. goodness. So sleepless. <laughs> sleepless. Yeah. Yeah. Sleepless. Yeah. Yeah. During daytime, it's a bit difficult for me. So I always prefer writing uh, during nighttime. And how long, but, did, how long did you keep up that routine for? Uh, I think about a year. Okay. <laughs> Wow, but so but I but I took some weekends and slept. I mean, it's not that difficult, by the way. I mean, it's totally doable. So oh. make the time. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah, that's what we need to do. Great. <laughs> it's been such a pleasure to talk to you. Same here. Thank Same you here. so much. The Riffraff Podcast is hosted by co-founders Amy Baker and Rosie Edwards. Rosie and I just wanted to thank you all so much for listening. We're so incredibly grateful. So please do let us know what you think, what you'd like more of, and any debut authors you'd like to hear from. Also, it would be really lovely if you could subscribe and give us a review so we can spread the word and give these marvellous debut authors the exposure they deserve. Come say hey at the-refraff.com.